0: Section Thirteen of the Char Woman's Daughter by James Stevens. Chapters Twenty Five, Twenty Six, and Twenty Seven. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Twenty Five. Mrs. Cafferty came in that evening for a chat with Mrs. Make-Believe. There were traces of worry on the lady's face, and she hushed the children who trooped in her wake with less of good humor than they were accustomed to. Instead of threatening to smack them on the head, as was usual, she did smack them, and she walked surrounded by lamentations as by a sea. Things were not going at all well with her there was a slackness in her husband's trade so that for days together he was idle and although the big woman amended her expenditure in every direction she could not by any means adjust eight robust appetites to a shrunken income she explained her position to mrs make-believe children would not they could not consent to go on shorter rations than they had been accustomed to and it seemed to her that daily almost hourly their appetites grew larger and more terrible she showed her right hand whereon the mere usage of a bread-knife had scored a ridge which was now a permanent disfigurement god bless me she shouted angrily what right have i to ask the creatures to go hungry am i to beat them when they cry it's not their fault that they want food and it's not my poor man's fault that they haven't any he is ready to work at his trade if anybody wants him to do so and if he can't get work and if the children are hungry whose fault is it mrs cafferty held that there was something wrong somewhere but whether the blame was to be allocated to the weather the employer the government or the deity she did not know nor did mrs make-believe know but they were agreed that there was an error somewhere a lack of adjustment with which they had nothing to do but the effects whereof were grievously visible in their privations. Meantime, it had become necessary that Mrs. Cafferty should adjust herself to a changing environment. A rise or fall in wages is automatically followed by a similar enlargement or shrinkage of one's necessities, and the consequent difference is registered at all points of one's life-contact the physical and mental activities of a well-to-do person can reach out to a horizon while those of very poor people are limited to their immediate stagnant atmosphere and so the lives of a vast portion of society are liable to a ceaseless change a flux swinging from good to bad forever, an expansion and constriction against which they have no safeguards and not even any warning in free nature this problem is paralleled by the shrinking and expansion of the seasons the summer with its wealth of food the winter following after with its famine but many wild creatures are able to make a thrifty provision against the bad time which they know comes as certainly and periodically as the good time bees and squirrels and many others fill their barns with the plentiful overplus of the summer fields birds can migrate and find sunshine and sustenance elsewhere and others again can store during the good season of life energy by means whereof they may sleep healthily through their hard times these organizations can be adjusted to their environments because the changes of the latter are known and can be more or less accurately predicted from any point but the human worker has no such regularity his food period does not ebb and recur with the seasons there is no periodicity in their changes and therefore no possibility for defence or protective action his physical structure uses and excretes energy so rapidly that he cannot store it up and go to sleep on his savings and his harvests are usually so lean and disconnected that the exercise of thrift is equally an impossibility and a mockery the life therefore of such a person is composed of a constant series of adjustments and readjustments and the stern ability wherewith these changes are met and combated are more admirably ingenious than the much-praised virtues of ants and bees to which they are constantly directed as to exemplars mrs cafferty had now less money than she had been used to but she had still the same rent to pay the same number of children to feed and the same personal dignity to support as in her better days and her problem was to make up by some means to which she was a stranger the money which had drifted beyond the reach of her husband the methods by which she could do this were very much restricted children require an attention which occupies the entire of a mother's time and consequently she was prevented from seeking abroad any mitigation of her hardships the occupations which might be engaged in at home were closed to her by mere overwhelming competition the number of women who are prepared to make ten million shirts for a penny is already far in excess of the demand and so except by a severe undercutting such as a contract to make twenty million shirts for a haypenny work of this description is very difficult to obtain under these circumstances nothing remained for mrs cafferty but to take in a lodger this is a form of cooperation much practised among the poorer people The margin of direct profit accruing from such a venture is very small, but this is compensated for by the extra spending power achieved. A number of people pooling their money in this way can buy to greater advantage and in a cheaper market than is possible to the solitary purchaser, and a moderate toll for wear and tear and usage, or as it is usually put, for rent and attendance, gives the small personal profit at which such services are reckoned through the good offices of a neighbouring shopkeeper mrs cafferty had secured a lodger and with the courage which is never separate from despair she had rented a small room beside her own this room by an amazing economy of construction contained a fireplace and a window it was about one square inch in diameter and was undoubtedly a fine room The lodger was to enter into possession on the following day, and Mrs. Cafferty said he was a very nice young man, indeed, and did not drink. Chapter 26 Mrs. Cafferty's lodger duly arrived. He was young and as thin as a lathe, and he moved with fury. He was seldom in the place at all. He fled into the house for his food, and having eaten it, he fled away from the house again, and did not reappear until it was time to go to bed. What he did with himself in the interval, Mrs. Cafferty did not know, but she was prepared to wager her soul, the value of which she believed was high, on the fact that he was a good young man who never gave the slightest trouble, saving that his bedclothes were always lying on the floor in the morning, that there was candle grease on one corner of his pillow, and that he cleaned his boots on the chair but these were things which one expected a young man to do and the omission of them might have caused one to look curiously at the creature and to doubt his masculinity mrs make-believe replied that habits of order and neatness were rarely to be found in young people of either sex or especially were these absent in boys who are released in early youth by their mothers from all purely domestic employments a great many people believed as she believed herself that it was not desirable a man or boy should conform too rigidly to household rules she had observed that the comfort of a home was lost to many men if they were expected to take their boots off when they came into the house or to hang their hats up in a special place the women of a household being so constantly indoors find it easy and business-like to obey the small rules which comprise household legislation but as the entire policy of a house was to make it habitable and comfortable for its men-folk all domestic ordinances might be strained to the utmost until the compromise was found to mollify even exceptional idiosyncrasies a man she held bowed to quite sufficient discipline during his working hours and his home should be a place free from every vexatious restraint and wherein he might enjoy as wide a liberty as was good for him these ideas were applauded by mrs kefferty and she supplemented them by a recital of how she managed her own husband and of the ridiculous ease whereby any man may be governed for she had observed that men were very susceptible of control if only the control was not too apparent if a man did a thing twice the doing of that thing became a habit and a passion any interference with which provoked him to an unreasoning bull-like wrath wherein both wives and crockery were equally shattered and therefore a woman had only to observe the personal habits of her beloved and fashion her restrictions according to that standard this meant that the men made the laws and women administered them a wise allocation of prerogatives for she conceived that the executive female function was every whit as important as the creative faculty which brought these laws into being she was quite prepared to leave the creative powers in male hands if they would equally abstain from interference with the subsequent working details for she was of opinion that in the pursuit of comfort not entirely to their credit was it said, men were far more anxiously concerned than were women, and they flew to their bourne with an instinct for short cuts wherewith women were totally unacquainted. But in the young man who had come to lodge with her, Mrs. Cafferty discerned a being in whom virtue had concentrated to a degree that almost amounted to a congestion. He had instantly played with the children on their being presented to him. this was the sign of a good nature. Before he was acquainted with her ten minutes, he had made four jokes, this was the sign of a pleasant nature, and he sang loudly and unceasingly when he awoke in the morning, which was the unfailing index to a happy nature. Moreover, he ate the meals provided for him, without any of that particular tedious examination which is so insulting, and had complimented Mrs. Cafferty on an ability to put a taste on food which she was pleased to obtain recognition of both mary and her mother remarked on these details with an admiration which was as much as either politeness or friendship could expect mrs make-believe's solitary method of life had removed her so distantly from youth that information about a young man was almost tonic to her she had never wished for a second husband but had often fancied that a son would have been a wonderful joy to her she considered that a house which had no young man growing up in it was not a house at all and she believed that a boy would love his mother if not more than a daughter could at least with a difference which would be strangely sweet a rash impulsive unquiet love a love which would continually prove her love to the breaking point a love that demanded and demanded with careless assurance that accepted her goodness as unquestioningly as she accepted the fertility of the earth and used her knowing blindly and flatteringly how inexhaustibly rich her depths were she could have wept for this it was priceless beyond kingdoms the smile on a boy's face lifted her to an exaltation her girl was inexpressibly sweet surely an island in her wide heart but a little boy her breasts could have filled with milk for him him she could have nourished in the rocks and in desert places he would have been life to her and adventure a barrier against old age an incantation against sorrow a fragrance and a grief and a defiance it was quite plain that mrs cafferty was satisfied with this addition to her household but the profit which she had expected to accrue from his presence was not the liberal one she had in mind when making the preliminary arrangements for it appeared that the young man had an appetite of which mrs cafferty spoke with the respect proper to something colossal and awesome a half-loaf did not more than break the back of a hunger which could wriggle disastrously over another half-loaf so that instead of being relieved by his advent she was confronted by a more immediate and desolating bankruptcy than that from which she had attempted to escape exactly how to deal with this situation she did not know and it was really in order to discuss her peculiar case that she had visited mrs make-believe she could of course have approached the young man and demanded from him an increase of money that would still be equitable to both parties but she confessed a repugnance to this course she did not like to upbraid or trouble any one on account of an appetite which was so noteworthy she disliked, in any event, to raise a question about food. Her instinct for hospitality was outraged at the thought, and as she was herself the victim or the owner of an appetite which had often placed a strain on her revenues, a fellow feeling operated still further in mitigation of his disqualification. Mrs. Make-believe's advice was that she should stifle the first fierce and indiscriminate cravings of the young man's hunger by a liberal allowance of stirabout which was a cheap wholesome and very satisfying food and in that way his destruction of more costly victuals would be kept within reasonable limits appetite she held was largely a matter of youth and as a boy who was scarcely done growing had no way of modifying his passion for nourishment it would be a lapse from decency to insult him on so legitimate a failing mrs cafferty thought that this might be done and thanked her friend for the counsel But Mary, listening to these political matters, conceived Mrs. Cafferty as a person who had no longer any claim to honour, and she pitied the young man whose appetite was thus publicly canvassed, and who might at any moment be turned out of house and home on account of a hunger against which he had no safeguard and no remedy. CHAPTER Twenty Seven. It was not long until Mary and Mrs. Cafferty's lodger met as he came in by the hall door one day mary was carrying upstairs a large water-bucket the portage of which two or three times a day is so heavy a strain on the dweller in tenements the youth instantly seized the bucket and despite her protestations and appeals he carried it upstairs he walked a few steps in advance of mary whistling cheerfully as he went so she was able to get a good view of him He was so thin that he nearly made her laugh, but he carried the bucket, the weight of which she had often bowed under, with an ease astonishing in so slight a man, and there was a spring in his walk which was pleasant to see. He laid the bucket down outside her room, and requested her urgently to knock at his door whenever she required more water fetched, because he would be only too delighted to do it for her, and it was not the slightest trouble in the world.' while he spoke he was stealing glances at her face and mary was stealing glances at his face and when they caught one another doing this at the same moment they both looked hurriedly away and the young man departed to his own place but mary was very angry with this young man she had gone downstairs in her house attire which was not resplendent and she objected to being discovered by any youth in raiment not suitable to such an occasion she could not visualize herself speaking to a man unless she was adorned as for a festivity the gentlemen and ladies of whom her mother sometimes spoke and of whom she had often dreamt were never mean in their habiliments the gentlemen frequently had green silken jackets with a foam of lace at the wrists and a cascade of the same rich material brawling upon their breasts and the ladies were attired in a magnificent scarcity of clothing the fundamental principle whereof although she was quite assured of its righteousness she did not yet understand indeed at this period mary's interest in dress far transcended any interest she had ever known before she knew intimately the window contents of every costumier's shop in grafton and wicklow and dawson streets and could follow with intelligent amazement the apparent trifling but exceedingly important differences of line or seam or flounce which ranked one garment as a creation and its neighbour as a dress she and her mother often discussed the gowns wherein the native dignity of their souls might be adequately caparisoned mrs make-believe with a humility which had still a trace of anger admitted that the period when she could have been expressed in colour had expired and she decided that a black silk dress with a heavy gold chain falling along her bosom was as much as her soul was now entitled to she had an impatience amounting to contempt for those florid flamboyant souls whose outer physical integument so grievously misrepresented them she thought that after a certain time one should dress the body and not the soul and discovering an inseparability between the two she held that the mean shrine must hold a very trifling deity and that an ill-made or time-worn body should never dress gloriously under pain of an accusation of hypocrisy or foolishness but for mary she planned garments with a freedom and bravery which astonished while it delighted her daughter She combined twenty styles into one style of terrifying originality. She conceived dresses of a complexity beyond the labor of any but a divinely inspired needle, and others again whose simplicity was almost too tenuous for human speech. She discussed robes whose trailing and voluminous richness could with difficulty be supported by ten strong attendants, and she had heard of a dress— the fabric whereof was of such a gossamer and ethereal insubstancy that it might be packed into a walnut more conveniently than an ordinary dress could be impressed into a portmanteau mary's exclamations of delight and longing ranged from every possible dress to every impossible one and then mrs make-believe reviewed all the dresses she had worn from the age of three years to the present day including wedding and morning dresses those which were worn at picnics and dances and for travelling with an occasional divergence which comprehended the clothing of her friends and her enemies during the like period she explained the basic principles of dress to her daughter showing that in this art as in all else order cannot be dispensed with there were things a tall person might wear but which a short person might not and the draperies which adorned a portly lady were but pitiable weeds when trailed by her attenuated sister the effect of long thin lines in a fabric will make a short woman appear tall while round thick lines can reduce the altitude of people whose height is a trouble to be combated she illustrated the usage of large and small checks and plaids and all the mazy interweaving of other cloths and she elucidated the mystery of colour tone half-tone light and shade so interestingly that mary could scarcely hear enough of her lore She was acquainted with the colors which a dark person may wear, and those which are suitable for a fair person, and the shades proper to be used by a wide class, ranging between these extremes, she knew also, with a special provision for red-haired and sandy folk, and those who have no complexion at all. Certain laws which she formulated were cherished by her daughter as oracular utterances, that one should match one's eyes in the house and one's hair in the street was one— that one's hat and gloves and shoes were of vastly more importance than all the rest of one's clothing was another that one's hair and stockings should tone as nearly as possible was a third following these rules she assured her daughter a woman could never be other than well dressed and all of these things mary learned by heart and asked her mother to tell her more which her mother was quite able and willing to do end of section thirteen